Alrighty, folks, you are listening to Talking Shit with Crazy You Bastard, the show about who the fuck knows, but anything goes. Now, folks, everyone knows that I am a collector of stories, and this is a man I have actively chased up today because I have heard he has the most amazing stories known to humankind. So, folks, today I have the great pleasure of meeting Prof. Now, for those of you, I suppose the first question you're going to ask is how it's spelled P-R-O-F-T-H. How are you going, Prof? Going well, thank you. Marvellous, marvellous. So, um, listen, mate, I've heard a lot of people tell me that uh, you have an amazing story, an amazing background, and this is why I've chased you up today. I'm sitting out here in the middle of New South Wales on the deck in this little uh, area called The Grove, which I'm sure will pop into the story at some stage. So, I'll tell you what, mate, the uh, usual advice I give to everyone is, of course, to just start from the start and let the story take it where it will. So, uh, sir, you have the floor. Right, starting from the beginning, yes. Uh, I was born in a small village in North Somerset in England uh, a very small village so my family owned a lot of the, the stores and the farms there that's a, it's quite a big family but, uh, uh, I brought lived, I was I suppose in early days you'd say a nerd I was sort of basically spending my time out in the countryside. I was collecting insects and fossils and rocks and just being involved with uh, what was around it rather than with people. But uh, uh, from about t- 10 years old, I had a, not a little Aussie girl who happened to come to the school and so sort of used to be a companion when I was out collecting whatever. And then uh, at 11 in, Austra- in England, you've got this exam, the 11 plus, which in this case meant that if you passed the exam, you went to the local town and sort of followed getting educated or what system was called education in England in those days. <laughs> uh, if you didn't, you sort of you went to the local school which was basically looking at producing farm labourers. And uh, my being, of, I was usually top of the class, but... Uh, being the nerd, but then when it came to exams, I had a nervous and was quite nervous, so I didn't ever pass exams at all, so I've always failed exams. Mm-hmm. So, so in, in this case, uh, Linda, the, girl, the, young, the young Aussie girl, went on to town and I stayed in the village and went to the village school. Then, uh, in 64, I would have been 15 then, just a chance, I just happened to meet up with her again. And uh, she's uh, saying, well, how come you're in this village, there's nothing happens in this village, there's a revolution happening out there, the the town's alive, you need to get in and see what the town's doing, so... Being the studious type, I sort of thought, oh, we'd better go and study the town. <laughs> so off we sort of traipsed into town, and yes, I found the quite, 
quickly found the revolution. There was a co little tiny little coffee bar there where so you had a hundred kit where they had a big jukebox with the local music and there's like a couple of hundred kids sort of trying to jam into this tiny cafe was sort of all over the street outside and the whole neighborhood and uh, yeah but things were definitely happening there and then a couple of months later there were a couple of uh, beatniks turned up which was uh, really the, the beatniks were, were the traveling people and they were the ones that were really spreading the message about what was happening in those times. That, uh, um, and that was, uh, said, well, look, uh, yeah, this is where I want to go. That, so it was, it was a story, it was a, a story basically utopian. That it said, like at that time, we were just coming out of the Second World War, and uh, everyone had short, like all the guys had short back and sides. Everyone was so really fussy about their clothing, and they all had to, like, there was a lot of, like, this very right wing. Like, uh, Britain was uh, just about as fascist as Germany had been at that time. That no. So it was, uh, and... Uh, like everyone had to sort of march everywhere and everything was totally regimented and uniform and uh, and yeah, there, was a, there was the kids just jumped up and sort of said, no, we're not going there, we're going to try something different and we called it counterculture. Mm -hmm. The people who were involved in it were, were called freaks, although uh, generally the press used the, the the name hippie, which was their sort of thing. You could always tell if it was the press talking, was they'd be using hippie. Mm -hmm. but, but the whole idea was to experience different things, to, to try out different things. It was a group consensus that we were going to try out different alternatives. Mm -hmm. And in... Some will work, some won't work, uh, but just to try different ways of being, experiment and see what happens. And yeah, and one of those things was drugs. So people were taking drugs, but as an experimental thing, not to party, but to uh, just get into different spaces to, with, with the idea of social change. Fantastic. And... Um, uh, so that being the sort of the message, then it was sort of a matter of taking that out. So I finished school in 65 and having failed my exams again. Mm -hmm. And then in early 66, I sort of joined the Beatnik rundown. There's one little town in the far southwest, uh, St. Ives, which is where the beatniks tended to congregate in the summer, and so sort of made down there, and uh, it was a place, it was funny, it was a tourist place, it had a big, like, 
the the locals were very much up in arms. It it had a reputation as it was a artist colony, and uh, they uh, had, so they had a lot of of uh, painters and sculptors, uh, famous ones who came from St Ives, and and they had a booming folk music scene there, which so uh, so lots of the famous fa or the famous folk musicians of the times used to sort of come down to St Ives and just play or so. Uh, but uh, everyone was trying to distance from the, the beatnik thing which was also happening there and they're trying like so all the artists and the musicians are saying no we don't like beatniks and this and so trying to keep in with the local council who would have chucked them out if they said they were supporters and but uh, it was there that sort of like, I suppose that would have been my first sort of music festival would have been down there, that sort of experiencing the sort of, of the first parts of alternative lifestyle. Then uh, over the next couple of years, by 67, that was a summer of love, so they had uh, a lot of people took on the fashion of bells and beads like it became a fashion item which was sort of a bit odd but uh, I mean for most of us we weren't too bothered about clothing or whatever that so was whatever rags and things could manage that uh, had had a couple of friends arrested because they bought a couple of uh, red uniforms with braid out of the local op shop and wore them down the street, and it turned out that they were actually uh, current uh, British uniforms, <laughs> which they got arrested for wearing a bit of uniform that they weren't belonging to. And well, there's so many rules and regulations. I mean, all the shops in that, that time, you go and shop, and they had signs up saying, "Beatniks and undesirables will not be served in this place." Right. And that was like, it was quite hard to find sort of shops that would actually serve you at all. And then as the 60s went on, then it became hippies and undesirables will not be served. But uh, there was always quite a problem like that. And we saw, so ended up having to band together a bit just to get along. And, uh, in the, uh, in 68, I was... Uh, Helping, there was this organisation where they had sort of young homeless people looking after the old homeless people. So it was like a soup kitchen run by, or hip, beats, hippies, freaks, whatever, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, looking after the old tramps, most of whom were sort of people left over from the wars who sort of just couldn't get back into society after being institutionalised for years. And uh, then af after, in the, in the spring of 69, went, ended up in London. And uh, the place in London that was happening at the time was called the Arts Lab, which was in Drury Lane. Guy Jim Haynes had this uh, performance space, which was where happenings happened. So that uh, uh, was uh, particularly the sort of home turf for uh, Yoko Ono and David Bowie and a few of the other sort of 
people of the time who are sort of more into performance stuff. Impressive. And uh, next, um, uh, but it was also being a free space, people tended to just sort of crash out about the place too, which was not working very well for Jim. So, but next door there was an old hotel, the Bell Hotel, that was uh, empty, derelict. And uh, so I sort of moved in there and started sort of uh, creating a space for pe for people, sort of a accommodation space, basically for people who are involved with the arts lab. And uh, so when I got up to London, I sort of moved in there and was living there for a few weeks. And then the police sort of came in. They said they had a search warrant, that they were going to do a drug bust. So they suddenly found the sort of door in my room being kicked in and uh, this uh, policeman comes in and says, oh, look what I found here, and he's got a police search bag with uh, full of marijuana. And I said, and I don't know, something sort of split in me. I said, look, wait a minute, that's a police search bag you got that in. You didn't just pick that up <laughs> off the floor. <laughs> and... And I basically picked him up, which I don't know, I was tiny and he was huge, but I so picked him up and threw him down the stairs. Oof. And I cl closed the door and thought, whoops, now I'm in problems. <laughs> <laughs> I do have to ask, did it make a very satisfying sound? <laughs> hey, well, I said, I closed the door very quickly before I saw Solavari gone, but uh, it was, uh, but then a couple of minutes later, everything's quiet. And then there's this sort of very polite little knock on the door, um, and different policeman. Excuse me, sir, uh, we're evacuating the building. Can you please collect your stuff and leave? Oh, right. <laughs> 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 never saw the first policeman again, <laughs> so the, the, the second one. So everyone was sort of marched out onto the street, and then the police didn't seem to know where to go from there. I mean, they hadn't got an eviction order at all. They'd only... That they'd only got permission to do a drug bust, so 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 they just they just sort of wandered off and left us to all sort of wander back inside again. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but but that sort of night we had a meeting and uh, decided we had to sort of work out some sort of plan of sort of making it into an official squat. Uh, now. I'd met a couple of people in there that were like quite a couple of very interesting characters. The most noticeable one was uh, Guy Philip Cohen, who's uh, was, uh, from the Cambridge University student. He was uh, uh, he was involved with uh, the Situationalists, and he'd been in the. Uh, uh, whole Paris riots and involved with the whole situationist thing there. Could I just cut in for one second? Uh, what are the situationalists? What's the? It, it's it's allied uh, with uh, anarchy. Oh, okay. So it, it's it's a sort of a, a form of anarchist. But they've got their own sort of teachers and, and ways of thinking. But uh, and uh, but he was mostly known. He uh, er, late in '68. He'd. 
uh, started this group called London Street Commune, which was initially something, it was a happening group, a group doing happenings, talking, um, but mostly of a disruptive nature. So the one big event that they'd done, they got uh, 50 people dressed up in Santa costumes. They'd gone into uh, Harrods and started giving away all the toys. <laughs> the show. Yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, yeah, as you can imagine, there was quite an uproar about that one. <laughs> can imagine. Yeah. Uh, so that was sort of one character, and then he had his uh, Phil had his sort of sidekick Gabriel, who was sort of around with him. There was another guy who was. Uh, Sid Roll, who was uh, led a group called the Diggers, who were basic, basically trace uh, were a reforming of a group in the uh, 1600s, who were sort of digging up the common to uh, to grow food for themselves. Okay. But uh, in this sort of in in the sort of hippie types period it's, it was like uh that they were just going out for for, for for to free the land and actually uh uh later in the year he had uh the Beatles gave them on the island which didn't work out hmm. and then they had uh, uh uh some Indian guru found them an island off of Dublin that they lived on for a year or two, but so they fell through again. But then he ended up so being the person who organised most, who started most of the music festivals in England. So he became quite a big sort of festival promoter. And but uh, but they were sort of there, and we were sort, of, and uh, then when when after the police bust in Bell Hotel. Then uh, uh, Jim was off doing something else at the time, so he got a guy, Calastron, to come in, and the idea was that they were going to make some formal rental agreement, and they're going to have... Uh, uh, the rooms are going to be sort of set to different people. And uh, Phil, being the anarchist, sort of said, no, let's just have a sort of vote. Whoever's here sort of gets to have a say in the thing, and we're just sort of kind of completely open space. And uh, his, 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 when it came to a vote, he, he, his vote, his supporters won the vote, so instead of becoming a few people doing an artist colony, we had all this huge crowd of people just dust out all over the place. Whoa. And... Uh, and under the name of London Street Commune, right, and uh, and as a street commune, we were sort of providing food for like we do the whole soup kitchen thing and have people just coming in there and uh, it only lasted for a couple of days and then the police did get the proper eviction order and it closed down. Oh. And. Uh, Oh, they sort of moved back into the art slab, which the Jim wasn't happy about at all. <laughs> Just have hundreds of people sort of crashed out all over the sort of performance space. But and uh, 
most of us sort of found I found somewhere. And a couple of a couple of days later, I found another sort of squat to move into, which uh, was quite handy because it had sort of a couple of mattresses in there because uh, the uh, uh, the people the local. Hell's Angels, it was a, a proper Hell's Angel chapter in London at that time and uh, uh, the president was away over in America but uh, and it was uh, basically a couple of guys, Odd Job and Levi who were sort of uh, running that at the time and they were acting as security in the arts lab mm. and uh, uh, Levi came up to me and said, look, you know, you've got a bit of space there. Look, we've got this guy who's uh, uh, in, in need of looking after for a couple of days. We've got this guest from America, and can, can you look after him? I said, okay. And so this guy, Ken, who didn't know who Ken was, but so, uh, and he heard the, got the story after, after yeah, so, but we got on really well and spent a couple of days with this guy and um, and uh, it's only afterwards I found out got the things I didn't know who Ken Kesey was I had no clue who Ken Kesey was and it was only afterwards I found out this is for those who don't know Ken Kesey it was the guy who uh, wrote One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is his main claim to fame but he was also the guy who sort of basically started up the whole hippie thing in us in the states. Like he he was uh, as a sort of the, when they had the group of sort of of four writers trying to sort of scratch through, and they they had this thing that the local uh, Harvard were sort of doing tests on LSD, mm-hmm. and. Uh, so, so he was brought in as a guinea pig, and said yes, great, and sort of, and got went over, moved over to California, and got the whole sort of uh, LSD thing happening over there. Oh. So anyway, so he was just he'd be, he'd come over to England. He was going to do a big thing at the uh, Stonehenge for midsummer, and. Uh, uh, he'd been staying in in the Apple Studio, and uh, so uh, along with sort of about a large group of assorted followers and Hell's Angels, and so apparently Harrison had got fed up with him being there and sort of moved the whole lot out, yeah. and so he was sort of just wandering around looking a bit lost at the time and. So I ended up being his carer for a couple of days. <laughs> but anyway, so this carried on through. So, oh, so then we got, uh, as the summer progressed, we got into... Uh, oh, and that's my name. Yes, I better say my name. Uh, a prof, because I was... Uh, studio, I was the nerd at school, so that was... I was prof. Oh. And then... Uh, uh, there's a thing, t- uh, the, the is the evil word in, in William Burroughs, had the as being an evil, because it defined something. That, so, so, and, uh, uh, Ken, Ken Kesey was finding it odd, like, in England, 
like most all the sort of the beatniks and quite a few of the hippies were sort of were actually having their using their Christian names followed with the and then a descriptor to say what they were so saying what they were into mm-hmm. and saying look this this is really so limiting the thing the idea is to be unlimited now if we have the the without a descriptor then that sort of allows you to be anything you want in life ah. and uh, and they say, well, oh, and to get rid of the energy of the V, we'll just cut the E off too. So we just ended up with the TH. Oh, there <laughs> Anyway, summer went on. We sort of went, left London, and uh, was moving around the country. And what we're doing was setting up street communes around the country. And that I'd sort of have a couple of cooking stoves, which were a sort of pump-up kerosene at those days, and uh, you usually get a couple, uh, go to the ice cream shops, get a couple of ice cream tins to cook in, and then know all the sort of the plants, like England's fantastic for bush tucker, there are just so many plants you can eat out, out, out there, and so I'd say, well like, okay, well like, as individuals, people travelling around England were getting a lot of harassment from the police and the councils, and so, like, the strength in numbers here would sort of bring everyone together, and we'd sort of do it around the food thing. So, there was a thing about not having money in those days, like, nobody had more than a couple of pennies, <laughs> so it was... There's a thing about sort of poverty, the lilies of the field or whatever, and so uh, oops, lost it. <laughs> that uh they say like if people have got a few pennies to put into a pu- a purse, then we'll sort of buy some cheap foodstuffs or some extra bits. If we don't have any money we'll eat out the bush. And uh, we'll just, but we'll just so sort of basically cook communally, and we'll sort of keep the group together with that. And that's where I've always gone is with keeping the group together with around the food thing. Fantastic. And uh, so we had uh, groups happening in various towns, all those like twenty three towns all around England during the summer of sixty nine one. I was particularly involved again down in St. Ives. I stayed down there and all the others like sort of Cowan and uh, Roll and the other sort of people all sort of came down for a while. We had a couple of squats down in St. Ives that sort of, uh, one of which caused a sort of riot. We had a few hundred local vigilantes sort of uh, bashing on the doors and climbing on the roof and they had to call in police from all over Cornwall and sort of were taken into protective custody (laughs) and then in the autumn we sort of headed back up to uh, London we had uh, uh, at that time the main street commune squat was uh, in uh, a a derelict hospital next door to Bow Street Police Station. 
but uh, it was sort of it was different. They had uh, there were a whole lot of really heavy guys, so guys with knives, as uh, particularly as one guy, Mad Mick, sort of a really huge guy who so reckoned he just sort of got out of prison from murder from murder thing, and uh, was not worried about murdering other people and so and he was lording it over the whole place and was her the building was great but the sort of the people in there were causing a real problem and you had this guy Bernard the Poet who was a little guy who was like uh, looked like Ronnie Corbett uh, Ronnie Corbett uh, and he had this thing Look can ever work out. He saw, he used to write poems on pieces of toilet paper and then he used to go to the West End and he used to sort of go around the stage door and find the most glamorous actresses and hand them these sort of love poems on toilet paper and so generally wandered off with them. Uh, then we wouldn't see him for a couple of days and then he'd be back on the street again so (laughs) (laughs) uh, and uh, so he being sort of wandering around London quite a lot so he found these two places possible squatting places the first one was uh, uh, in Holborn Endell Street was uh, a derelict school I thought, okay, well, let's get some of the more peaceful <laughs> persons of the out of the uh, uh, out of this sort of squat with all these knives and violence and sort of into a peaceful environment. So we sort of moved a whole crowd of commune people into the uh, the school. Mm-hmm. Uh, We'd only been in there half an hour and Mad Mick comes storming through the door. Uh, says, well, so, comes up to me and says, so what are you doing? I'm the boss here. I said, well, look, we don't have bosses. We're, we're a community. And he promptly king hit me. Ooh. Now, I sort of dragged myself to my feet. And I don't know what sort of came over me. I wasn't so particularly Christian or anything at that time. But I sort of told him to hit the other cheek. And uh, he just said, well, I don't, don't know why I'm helping all you loonies and uh, I'm fed up with this whole thing. And he sort of stormed out, taking the door with him. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, basically didn't take any more part in the whole thing at all. But by then, everyone was just totally freaked out about the whole idea. And they said, oh, well, we're going to have to try the other one. Alrighty, folks, this is the uh, end of the first episode of the interview with Prof. Now, I did sit outside with him for a good two hours, so I've actually cut this down into four manageable pieces, of course. I like to keep these episodes short so that people can listen to them on the way to work and on the way back if they so desire. Uh, So there are three more parts of the interview to come up. I absolutely recommend you have a listen to them. The stories just get more and more fascinating. You will not believe 
what this man has experienced in his life. So, folks, if you've uh, enjoyed what you're listening to, click the like, click the subscribe. Of course, if you think someone will also enjoy this, click the share button. And uh, if there's any social media up by this stage, well, go ahead and click that too and uh, follow on for more episodes. In the meantime, I shall see you on the next one. Thanks for listening.